0: Today's reading is from Esther chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. You can also find it in the bulletin. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told her to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions.
1: Thank you very much. Let me begin with a quote, and let's see if you can work out uh, where this is from. It's gone. I've lost the mask. Did you drop it? You dropped it. That was my only chance of finding my son. Now it's gone. Hey, Mr. Grumpy Girls. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Can you work out where that is from? Uh, that is, of course, from Finding Nemo. Surely one of the world's best movies of all time. You see, in this movie, we follow Marlin, the clownfish, along with Dory, on this incredible adventure. Uh, I mean, Pixar really served us a treat. This incredible underwater world, full of color, full of life, as we follow their journey to try to retrieve his son, Nemo. And as we join this journey, we're desperate for them to succeed. We're invested in the story. We, We long for this father and son to be reunited, to be reconciled. And so we want them to make it. We're urging them on. And yet, of course, if you remember the film, they hit setback after setback, hurdle after hurdle. And we think to ourselves, how are they ever going to make it? The odds are stacked against them. Now, of course, the answer is simple. All they have to do is just keep swimming. And yet, how do you find the resources to keep going like that when you keep hitting all these hurdles? Now, of course, none of us here are quite on the same adventure as Marlon and Dory. Even though some of us here, I know, have links with Sydney, Australia. And yet, none of us are quite on the same journey to 42 Wallaby Way. That's where Nemo is, Sydney, Australia. And yet, many would describe the Christian life as a journey that we're on, a path that we walk And on that path, we encounter all sorts of hurdles, and setbacks, challenges. Now granted, again, our life is very different from the film of Finding Nemo. The the challenges we face tend not to be great white sharks and poisonous jellyfish. And yet the hurdles that we face are real nonetheless. Just think of the things we've looked at over the past few weeks here in Esther. We live in a world where earthly powers seem supreme, and God seems to be absent. We find ourselves a long way from home, living in a place that we don't belong. Last week, we saw the sobering truth that there is an enemy at work, even now, against God's people. See, these are the things that fill our horizons. And when that's the case, where do you find the strength, the resources, to just keep swimming, to keep on trusting? keep on holding on to God's promises, to keep on waiting for Him to come through on those promises. You see, as we join the action again in Esther, here in chapter 4, you'll remember God's people are faced with destruction. Uh, Their enemy, Haman, had manipulated the king to issue a decree to destroy all of God's people, and so they were left powerless. Where was God? Would God come through? Would God rescue His people? Well friends, what we see in chapter 4 is that through Esther God does come through for His people. He comes through for them. He has not abandoned them. He provides for them. And specifically what we see today in our passage is that God provides someone to identify with His people in their need. God provides someone to identify with His people in their need. You see, They needed someone to represent them. God's people needed someone to to plead their case for them. They needed someone to identify with them in their need. And so as this passage unfolds, what we are presented with is the need that faced God's people, this desperate need, but also a decision that faced Esther, a huge decision. And through this, what we find is that God comes through for His people. God provides. He provides someone to identify with them in their need. In my prayers, as we look at how this unfolds in the context of Esther, we too would find encouragement, encouragement for today, to just keep swimming, to keep on trusting, to keep waiting on the Lord to come through on His promises. And so with that in mind, why don't we jump in then and look at the need, uh, the need that God's people faced. You see, they were in deep distress, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Uh, The tone is clear right from the off. Uh, Mordecai is in deep distress. Sackcloth and ashes, sackcloth and ashes, again in verse 3, wailing and mourning and weeping. He doesn't keep this contained. When Mordecai learns of what's happened, he doesn't just stay quiet. He doesn't just brush it off. No, he's thrown into deep distress. Now, for us coming to this text, it's, it's quite easy to just skip past this. It's only a couple of verses, three verses. Uh, we, they're just words on a page. Or perhaps because we know that the story ends up okay for God's people. We kind of think, it's not, it's not too bad, Mordecai. And yet if we... Join Mordecai in this moment. If we inhabit these verses, uh, we'd see that it is a distressing set of circumstances. You see, what is it that Mordecai learns about? Well, it's what we looked at last week. Haman had manipulated the king to issue this decree to destroy God's people. You remember the scope of that decree. It was to kill, annihilate, destroy them. Uh, The scope of it was comprehensive. Women and children were involved, young and old, Everyone who belonged to God's people would come under this decree. It was etched in their calendars. There was a date that was picked out for this destruction, this judgment day. It was as if this dark cloud loomed over them. It would not dissipate. Their horizons were filled with this. And of course, not just from Mordecai, but but all of God's people, the whole community joined him in this. Verse 3, in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They were in deep distress. Now the phrasing here actually resembles very closely what we find in Joel chapter 2. We'll put it on the screen. Joel chapter 2 verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with Fasting and weeping and mourning See that final phrase is just what we find in our passage In fact in the Hebrew it's titled It's literally the same three words we see in our passage here Just translated differently In other words what God's people are doing here in Esther Is what God invites them to do in Joel To come to him, to cry out to him, to return to him As we join this, the action in, in chapter 4 God's people they're not just crying out in general Uh, They're not just crying out into the darkness. They're crying out to God. They're turning to Him. They're calling upon Him in their sin and their sorrow. They are waiting for Him to act, to come through for them. Because in this scenario, they look utterly powerless. Uh, Perhaps you notice that little detail in in verse 2. They were shut out. Mordecai, he went only as far as the king's gate. Because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. So far, Mordecai has been found in the king's gate. That's where he is. that's, that's, That's where Mordecai is. Well, now he's not allowed in anymore. It's as if this kind of bad news, that's not allowed in the king's palace. He was shut out. Powerless to do anything. In fact, if you remember how we ended last week, the enemy sat down to drink in celebration. Well, God's people were thrown into bitter desperation. See, they find themselves fasting in a world that we know is filled with feasting. Would there be anyone in the palace who would fight for them? Now, of course, we know there is someone in the palace. Esther. Queen Esther. In fact, one of the, the threads that we've been celebrating over the past few weeks, against all the odds, God has now placed one of His people, this Jewish girl, high up in the palace, queen of Persia. And yet as we encounter her here in chapter 4, she seems to be completely isolated from her people. Verse 4, When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. There's this physical distance there. She needs to be told what's happened to Mordecai. She doesn't even know anymore what Mordecai is up to. It's only when her attendants tell her that she finds out. Uh, you go through the passage, there's this interesting back and forth between inside and outside. Uh, we start outside in the city square, we, we come inside to the palace, then we go back out to Mordecai. There's this distance between Esther and the rest of God's people. And uh, not only is it a physical distance, there seems to be an emotional distance too. See, M- Esther is distressed when she sees Mordecai's distress. But her distress isn't, isn't quite the same. She, she, she responds by trying to give him clothes to put on instead of sackcloth and ashes. It's almost like a superficial solution. It's, just, it's okay. It'll, it'll be okay. Because she doesn't know what's happened. Verse 5, Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. She didn't know what was going on. It's as if the news in the palace they wouldn't have broadcast what had happened. Uh, maybe the news in the palace, you know, on in the background, all they would, would broadcast was how great King Xerxes was, uh, his latest conquest, how good the economy was doing. Esther was removed from all of this. Uh, she's presented to us as distinct from her people. Uh, she's not recognizable as one of them. It's as if she's not speaking or living as one of God's people here. Put it this way, she's insulated from their plight. And so we wonder, well, one of God's people are high up in the palace, but but then there's no good if they're high up in the palace if if she won't identify with her people. See, what God's people need here, they need someone to represent them. They need someone who's willing to plead their case in the place of power. And so Mordecai tries to persuade her to act. Verse 6. Hathang went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and to explain it to her. He told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. See, Mordecai knows everything. You remember uh, two weeks ago, Mordecai came across an assassination plot against the king. Well, once again, he comes across a plot, uh, this time to annihilate the Jews. Uh, We don't know how he gets all this information, but he even knows how much money Haman had promised the king for this plan. See, he knows everything, and he wants Esther to know. He wants her to know the burdens of her people. He tells her, he explains to her the gravity of the situation. See, the focus here is on how the Jews would be annihilated. God's people would be destroyed. That's how high the stakes were. God's people. The people that God had promised himself to. Everything was at stake. And so he urges her to plead their case. Do you notice how he describes God's people at the end there? He wants Esther to go beg for mercy, to plead with him. For who? For her people. It's as if Mordecai is saying to Esther, remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember who your people are. He wants her to identify with God's people in their need. Because that's what they needed. See, at that time, they were shut out. They could do nothing about their predicament. It's as if the door was slammed shut in their face. And so they needed someone else to come to their aid. They needed someone else to go where they could not go and to plead their case. You see, all they could do was was cry out. Now, of course, we said earlier that they're not crying out into the darkness. See, if there was no God, then all you can cry out to is the empty void. No, they're crying out to God. But so far, it looks like God is nowhere to be seen. See, they're crying out to Him, but would He answer? Is He even listening to them in their need? They're waiting on him to act. They're waiting for him to come through, but how do you keep on waiting in circumstances like this? Um, more trivial scenarios would be like when you're waiting on a callback from customer services or the property management services. You give them your number, you give them your name, you say oh, they'll, they'll call back, but how long are you willing to wait? In fact, over the summer, when we moved here from the States, we lost one of our suitcases on the way. For some reason, it wasn't tied to our boarding ticket. And so there's no record of this. And so they just said, oh, will fill out this form, and then we'll call you. Uh, red suitcase. Brand? Don't know. That's all we could put down. Red suitcase and my phone number. How long are you going to wait? Are you really going to wait? Are you really going to expect them to call you back? See, the tension here, it builds throughout this chapter. It had looked like God had placed Esther in just the right place, in just the right time. But what would she decide? See, this in and out, this back and forth. What would she decide? All these messages have to go through this intermediary. The message goes out to Mordecai. Well, how is he going to respond? The messenger takes it back to Esther. Well, how is she going to react? Now, of course, we're, we're used to much more instantaneous kind of communication now. And yet even we know uh, the agony of having to wait for the response. See, even on WhatsApp, you have to wait for them to respond. You send them a message. Oh, how are they going to react to my suggestion, to my question? You have the little ticks, don't you? Uh, the one tick. Oh, the message has been sent, but it hasn't been received. And then you get two ticks. The message is there, but they've not read it. What are they going to get blue ticks? Oh, they've seen it now. What are they going to say? And of course, the climax of it all. So-and-so is typing, dot, dot, dot. I mean, your heart is pounding at this point. What are they going to say in response? Now, clearly, there are better things to do with your time than just watch WhatsApp all day. But that's a sense of what we get here. Mordecai's pleading with her. This is what God's people need. What is she going to decide? Well, as the rest of the passage unfolds, we see the decision that confronts Esther. In fact, you can really see how it climaxes here. See, so far in verses 1 to 8, everything has been indirect. That sort of indirect speech, if you like, reported to us. Well, in verse 9 onwards, everything is direct speech. It comes to a focus. We get up close and personal. And this decision that Esther faced, it was huge. Because to go to the king, well, that would be a great risk to Esther. Verse 9... Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. It seemed like there was this well-known law. Everyone in the kingdom knew this. You can't just saunter up to King Xerxes. You can't just come unsolicited or uninvited. It seemed like maybe it was a, a kind of a, a protective measure to protect the king from assassination plots. You might remember back in chapter one, there's only seven people who could see the king's face like this. Either way, Esther knows the rule. You can't just walk up like that. It would put you at great risk. In fact, for Esther, it would put her under the edict. It would be her saying, you know that edict to kill all of these people? Well, I'm one of those people. It places her in great danger. In fact, at this stage in time, it would reveal her deception. Years had passed since she became Queen Esther. And all along, she has been hiding who her true people were, hiding her identity. Well, how do you think it would go down with King Xerxes if Queen Esther suddenly reveals, actually... I've been deceiving you all along. And there's that little detail at the end of verse uh, verse 11. 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Uh, The favor which the king showed her back in chapter 2, well, that seems to have cooled off. Esther was in a precarious position. It would be a great risk to her to go to the king. And so what Esther faces is really, it's an identity crisis. It's this, this fork in the road, a defining moment in her life. You remember how we were introduced to her with two names, Hadassah, her Hebrew name, Esther, her Persian name. And we asked the question, well, well which would she be? If push comes to shove, which life would she live? And who does she truly belong to? Does she belong to King Xerxes and the kingdom of Persia? Or does she belong to the kingdom of God? Now, we'll be, we'll be familiar with identity crises like this, forks in the road, where we, have to, where we have to decide, are we one of God's people or are we of the world here? And, of course, the situation here, well, the stakes are sky high. The fate of God's people lies, seems, seemingly, in this decision. Well, that's what Esther says to Mordecai. What's he going to make of that? What's he going to say in response Well, in verse 12 to 14, we find that Mordecai urges Esther to see God's hand at work. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you, you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai's words here are profound. There's this resolute trust that God will come through on his promises. He will come through for his people, even though it looks hopeless. And Mordecai doesn't know exactly how, but God will deliver his people one way or another. Nothing, he says, nothing can thwart the promises of the living God. Now what does that mean for Esther? Well, it would seem safer to stay quiet. See, in that moment, given the risks that we've seen of approaching King Xerxes, it would, it would be safer to stay quiet. And yet Mordecai urges us to see to do that would be turning your back on God's people. It would be turning your back on God's promises. It would be saying, I am not one of God's people. This is not my God. Well, of course, Stepping out would then put everything at risk. Mordecai urges her to see that it seems like this would protect life, to stay quiet. But it would, in fact, in the end, lead to death. But then what would she do? Stepping out would put everything at risk. Well, Mordecai poses a question to her. He lifts her gaze. He says, who knows, but that you have come. That is to say that you have been brought to your royal position For such a time as this, maybe, just maybe, this is why all of these crazy things have happened the way they have. Maybe, just maybe, this is why you find yourself in this position at this time. Now, he doesn't know for sure. He's not saying this is definitely what's happened. Oh, he can understand the mind of God. But he's urging her to see the hand of God at work, even in the unseen moments. Maybe, just maybe. Now, we can't guarantee that it would be successful. We can't guarantee that it would be safe. But he urges her to see that God is at work. And perhaps this is why he's placed her there. Well, that's Mordecai's pitch. What does Esther say then? How does Esther respond? Well, Esther goes for it. That's what she decides. She decides to go for it, even though she might lose everything. Verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. <clears throat> Esther responds by calling her fast. And No longer is she isolated from her people. No, she identifies with her people. No longer is she insulated from their need. No, she joins them in their plight, calling out to God to hear their prayer, calling out to God to answer, calling out to God to rescue them out of their sin, out of their sorrow. No longer is Esther isolated from her people. No, she identifies with her people. This is my people, she says. I am with you. In fact, it's a complete turnaround for the character of Esther. Uh, All the imperatives in these verses, they're from Esther. Uh, She takes charge. No longer is she the person who just does what everyone else tells her to. No, she is directing play. It's a complete transformation of Esther. And in this, she steps out. She risks everything. Think of it this way. At this point in time, there was no guarantee that it would work out. And there was no guarantee of her safety or that this plan would even work. There's no specific word from the Lord that says this is exactly what's going to happen. And yet she goes. She risks everything. There's those incredible words at the end of verse 16. If I perish, I perish. See, God's people were faced with this need A desperate need. And this is the decision that Esther takes. And through this, God comes through for his people. Through Esther, God comes through on his promises to protect them. It's God's silent sovereignty at work. See, through Esther, God provides someone to identify with his people in their need. As we look at Esther's decision... We said earlier, we can't help but think how we're familiar with this fork in the road, uh, this challenge to identify as belonging to God. And yet at the same time, we can't help but think of just how different this scenario is from us. I mean, the stakes are sky high. This is so much bigger than just me in my little neighborhood. This is the, this is the fate of God's people. And so as we look at this incredible example as we look at this inspiring example, I wonder if we find it so inspiring, because it actually makes us think of someone else. It doesn't make us think of ourselves first. No, it it makes us think of someone else who identified with God's people, someone else who identified with God's people in their greatest need. See, friends, what we have here in Esther is a little glimpse, a little picture, a little pointer a shadow of what's to come. Jesus Christ willingly left the royal palace and joined us in our plight. He took on flesh. He lived a humble life. Jesus Christ wasn't isolated, far removed from our troubles. No, he came up close and personal with our sin and our sorrow. He identified with us And he identified with us even unto death. You see, we too stand under an edict of judgment. And not the devious plans of someone like Haman, but the righteous judgment of a holy God. In other words, our problem isn't just that there is an enemy at work against God's people. No, the problem is that we stand as rebels before the one true king of the universe. We've not kept his law. We've gone our own way. We've tried to live as if we are kings of our own little worlds instead of his. Put it this way, none of us here could claim that we have perfectly identified as belonging to the one true king in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. And yet even though we did not identify with him through Jesus, God himself identifies with us in our need, in our greatest need. He took our sin as his own. That was the decision that Jesus took. A great risk to himself. Not just a great risk to himself, a great cost to himself. Jesus knew exactly where he was headed. And yet we know the decision he took in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. He went for it. He sat under the full weight of God's judgment. So that we could be given life. See, friends, through Esther, God provides someone to identify with His people in their need. And this, this points us to how, through Jesus, God Himself identifies with us in our need, our greatest need. Friends, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian believer, will you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because for all who have, he has secured freedom from judgment. See, our horizon, friends, if, you are, if your life is bound up with Jesus Christ, your horizon is no longer filled with judgment. Now, this doesn't mean that we're free from difficulty now. Here and now, we will still experience sin and sorrow. It will still be a time of fasting. But we can know that the time is coming when there will be no more fasting, no more weeping, no more mourning. There will be a time of feasting in the presence of the King forevermore. That that is what lies on our horizon. That is what fills our horizon. God did not abandon his people. We see that God did not abandon His people in their need here in Esther. We know that God has not abandoned His people in our greatest need. And so even in the midst of our sin and our sorrow, even when it looks like God is nowhere to be seen, you can know that God is not far off. He's not left us alone. Because He drew near to us through Jesus Christ. He secured for us this great future. And when we see that, when we grasp that, friends, that is where we find the encouragement to live and speak as those who belong to Christ. That is where we find the resources to keep calling out to Him, to keep praying to Him. That is where we find the strength to just keep swimming, to keep trusting, to keep waiting on the Lord, because we know that He will be true to His promises. Because through Jesus, God himself identified with us in our greatest need. Let's pray. Father, as we gather together this morning, we are all too familiar with the sin and sorrow in our world. We're all too familiar with the sin and sorrow in our own lives, in our own hearts. We thank you that as we As we wrestle with that, we are not left crying out to a dark, empty universe. No, Father, we can cry out to you. And we know that you are not far off. You have not abandoned us in our greatest need. And so we pray that you would help us believe that afresh today. That we would wait for you with absolute confidence because of what you have done through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.